welcome to Sundial. I'm Carlos Frias. The Miami Book Fair made a deal with the writer Siham and Shasi. Come to Miami. We'll pay you to do nothing more for a year than work on your novel. What a deal, right? All they ask in return? Help others find their voice. Siham was handpicked by one of America's rising stars in literature for the assignment. She's the Miami Book Fair's fiction fellow. The fair also awards writers in poetry, nonfiction, and Spanish literature with a fellowship. While she worked on her book, Siham taught a workshop. She taught people in our community how to write for their audience. She challenged them to tell stories in their own voices. Siham's own work is inspired by her life growing up in New Jersey. Her parents are Palestinian immigrants. She wants her novel to reflect her experience. She's had a career in advertising and got an MFA at the New School in New York. But this year, she joined our literary community. Let's talk to her about her novel, what she's teaching us, and what we're teaching her. Welcome, Siham. Welcome, Sam. Hello. Thank you for having me. It's Sam, right? Sam is... is, uh, is this Siham is what's going to go on the book jacket? Yes, exactly. exactly. <laughs> but Sam is to your friends? Yeah, it's... There's a whole story behind that. Um, I think as a writer, you'll learn, like, any writer has a whole story for everything in their life. Yes. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, I've I've gone by Sam for a good chunk of my life. It's kind of easier. Uh, I love my name. I've embraced it, but it took a long time to get to the point of embracing it. But I just find it easier. I, I'm very proud of you, though, like that. You've been pronouncing it really well. <laughs> well, we worked on it. We worked. We don't, we don't want to clown ourselves by getting it wrong, so... It's it's good practice for me. I think about like the future of my career as a writer and I think about the fact that like I will be presented like that more and more often. I have to just get used to it. I have to get used to being like I'm Siham. I'm Siham. <laughs> <laughs> well, that kind of ties into really part of the the workshops that you were teaching, right? Is kind of yeah. having people embrace their own identities and their own and figure out what their voices are, right? Yeah, yeah. I think uh, I wrote, I created a workshop for Miami Book Fair recently. I called it Decolonizing Your Voice. Um, it's a topic I have been thinking about a lot lately. Um, I think the start of the um, the foundation of the class came from um, reading Matthew Salasis's book, um, Craft in the Real World. Mm. So it really kind of started to help hone things that have been playing around in my brain. Uh, for ta a while now. Yeah, talk to me about that. The idea of decolonizing. There's a lot of ways you could read that, right? Decolonizing your voice. Yes, yes. And I actually, based on the people who registered for the class, it was um, it, it was beautiful to realize like how many different ways people can think about what that is. And I tried to cater as much and make sure that everybody is kind of getting something out of it. Um, the thing I think about is, you know, Salasis talks a lot about how craft and how we're taught how to write mm -hmm. is very much based on a white male, um, America-centric, cis, uh, able-bodied, like, uh, structure. Like right, like who was making the rules exactly, all along exactly. the way, right? So like craft, the word craft is this idea of a set of rules, and he basically kind of just like wants to shatter that. Uh, there's things about what he says I agree with, there's things I don't necessarily agree with or I'm working through and I'm adapting. Um, but it's basically about like the fact that like if you read so much great literature out there, 
um, from various people within BIPOC communities, like there's no rules. There's absolutely no rules. Uh, you think of somebody like um, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, mm-hmm. and like his work was highly criticized before he got it published. Like he had editors who really wanted to change so much of it, and it is so different than anything I'd had read when I when I finally did read it. I'm just like. There's so much uh, conversation around like show versus tell. Mm -hmm. And I'm a big believer of show, don't tell. Mm. Um, And I'm still a big believer of that. But that becomes my personal philosophy. In other words, show, don't tell, like get into the details of a story rather than saying this is how I, you know, I felt X way rather than showing the actual structure of it. Yeah, that's part of it. But also like I'm very like in my writing, I'm very scene oriented. I'm like, Mm. I'd rather just play out one single scene that gives you the color of what's happening versus like you know explaining like this type of thing happened and this type of thing happened and it made me feel this and it made me feel that but like that's the thing around decolonizing your voice is realizing like none of that is wrong you decide what works for you but like there's an example anything you want to do there is an example of somebody who's done it right and it's just a matter of just Doing it in a way that feels compelling to people. Yeah, you know, we had we had a guest, um, uh, M. Evelina Galang, mm-hmm. um, who she she was writing. She was at UM and she was uh, inspiring other people uh, to write in, inclusive in their own languages. Yeah, in their work, including their that that other language, even if because it becomes inclusive to a particular set of people who are reading, it connects in yes. a way that it yeah that it otherwise might not. Talked a lot about language and translation in my class, and I'm. That is also another thing I'm working through in my own drafts. It's I'm bringing in my Arabic. Um, and the thing that I'm playing with is that my Arabic is not fluent. It is imperfect. It is scratchy. Um, it is grammatically wackadoodle. Um, <laughs> but it's also just embedded in my world. Like there's there's just things I hear that I know what I'm hearing. And so I've been playing with like, when can I lean into it? When do I don't want? When do I not want to lean into it? Mm. When do I translate it versus when do I not translate it? And it was a big thing I talked through in my class. Like I, I showed my students a lot of examples of writers who just blatantly do not translate. And it's like figure it out or don't figure it out. This might be for you. It might not be for you. There's so much literature out in the world right now. Like, can I can I stop on that because I yeah. think that's so important because like I always say Google exists. Yes. Right. Like when yes. I re- when I read, I always read. I, you, people say you should leave your phone in the other room, but I don't because I keep my my dictionary and the Google and like Google Translate. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. And the best writing gives you the perfect amount of context. Yes. And but also gives something a little plus, a little more insight for for the reader that that is specific of that community. Right. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. I think one of the authors I had my students read was uh, Juno Diaz. Um, we read a little chunk of it's just we were um, just talking about Juno with with uh, with Evelina. Yeah, there you go. Like it was a little chunk of Oscar. Wow. And it's like you read the first few pages and you're like, well, here we are. We're in for a ride. Like I'm allowed to do this. Yes. Right. Like a third of the page is words in Spanish and none of it is translated. But I, as a not native Spanish speaker, I know just, you know, a handful from years of high school Spanish that I never honed at all, um, was able to hold, follow along, right. you know, because right. it's it almost I felt like it washed over me. 
You're like I'm, and that's the skill in the writing. Yes. that's the. It's not by chance. Like, oh, I'm just going to be exclusive here. It's you do want to relate. I mean, writing is thinking, right? You yes. want to relate those that that thought that yeah. revelation in a way that is creative. And that's that's what goes in the hands of the writer, right? Uh, yeah, and like something I think about when I'm writing my own work is um, when I think about how to translate. Like, I have writers that I'm critical of that. I hate what they do is when they say something in their native language and then immediately in the next sentence or immediately like in the next words, mm. basically repeat it. Mm-hmm. Like it's laughable to me because as a native speaker, you are ostracizing me when you do like, Mejnuna, are you crazy? And I'm like, that literally you just said, are you crazy twice right. in a row? Right. But you're catering to a white audience. And so you're doing it wrong, in my opinion. <laughs> um Whereas in my work, I try to, if I do feel like something needs to be translated, I try to slip it in to the context of the next sentence mm-hmm. where like I'll say something like, you know, character piece of dialogue that says stenni, and then the next sentence it'd be, you know, I tried to wait as I was instructed, but I didn't want to or something like that. Right, you know? right. Something that reveals the 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 context of that without just hitting you over the head with it exactly exactly and then that goes to something that you just hit in a second ago which is audience right yes thinking about who you're writing for and i know you've um you were talking with our producer at least in the other room who uh who took your class uh your your uh, we call it your class but your seminar your workshop um (coughs) and and talked about that about thinking about your audience when you know when you start writing like who that who it is that you're writing for so talk to me about that when you're talking about uh like the difference between like you said writing for a white audience where you're you're acting almost as a translator of your culture Mm -hmm. of your Mm -hmm. experience versus saying hey uh versus someone who would empathize or sympathize with your experience yeah 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 yeah. Um, i mean it's funny it's it's something i'd been learning for the last number of years Mm -hmm. as i go along it's it's funny I'm working through in my current draft I'm working through pages I actually wrote back in 2015 and I'm trying to cut down those pages a lot and the easiest way that I'm cutting things down is I'm just ridding all the explanation that I thought I needed to explain Mm. it it was it's also an interesting psychological exercise for myself to realize like how much I felt I needed to defend my world and explain my world but this is 2015 and like times move so quickly and now you have like an entire subgenre of TikTok and Instagram of like people within your own culture talking about and laughing about and identifying with our own culture, speaking in our native language, um, speaking about our own native issues. And it inspires me. And I think about that. I think about like the time I had in grad school kind of figuring out what's the right and wrong way of doing these things. And I think and, um, you know, reading Salas's book as well as other uh, pieces of literature Um, there's a book that I assigned a few, uh, essays from that I highly recommend to anybody. It's called, uh, Letters to a Writer of Color. Um, it is a book of essays basically written by a collection of, uh, BIPOC writers. And, um, honestly, it just feels like this beautiful manifesto. Like it feels like inspiration, uh, to anybody. Because there's an element in there where you literally just have to hear the words, it's okay exactly. to think the way that you particular person think. Exactly. And it's like when we talk to one of those essays I really loved where um, the author had talked about um, when you talk to when you're trying to talk to that white audience, 
you're almost um you have to streamline the message so much you have to like think through like what is the most sanitized way to explain all this mm. and what you do is you end up losing all that nuance all like the beauty of uh of our stories whereas and i'm paraphrasing this probably badly i'm trying to remember it but uh, whereas when you write for your own people, it's almost an extra challenge. It's a challenge to tell your people something new about oh. your own world. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's a lot of what I've been seeing, again, in that like TikTok world and in that Instagram world and in the good writing that I've been reading and in what I'm trying to do myself is thinking about um, how do I send a message to us for us, you know? Right. And it's like it's not about explaining the patriarchal dynamics of our culture and the criticizing those for the white person. It's about having a conversation with other Arab women who grew up in our patriarchy and being like, hear my story. I want to hear your story. Let's commiserate together. Let's let let me help you identify some of the things maybe you couldn't put words to because it took me years to put words to the things I was feeling. So here's my words, and maybe they make sense to you. Mm. And I think that's the importance of <clears throat> thinking about your audience is like, what is the message you're trying to d convey, you know? Right. Our guest today is the writer Siham Inshasi. She has a one-year fellowship in the Miami Book Fair to work on her first novel. We were talking about, you know, that giving yourself permission, right? To, yeah. to writing your own voice and how it connects with people in a way that, that uh, writing more blandly does not. And, and it got me to thinking, you know, who, who gave you permission to, like, who was it when you think back that at what point were you, did you get to the point, whether it was a person or a time in your life, that gave you permission to go down that road? Oof. What a question to unpack, my friend. <laughs> we got, is, got nothing but time. That is a, a heck of a question to unpack, I'm telling you. Um, because, I, I don't know, my my knee-jerk reaction want to be like, nobody did and nobody's giving it to me. I'm still just giving it to myself. Mm -hmm. And it, it's, it's less permission um, and more forgiveness, acceptance, healing mm. that give me, quote, I've got air quotes up, uh, permission to do the work that I'm doing. I'm writing controversial stuff. Um, I am tackling, like I said, patriarchy. I'm tackling uh, a culture around um, sex mm. and, and how we think about um, women as sexual bodies. Um, well, talk to me. I, I want to spend some time about your experience, right? Because yeah. that's that's ultimately what builds into you, the person, and then comes out as you, the work, right? Yeah. Um, so what what were those what were those things that felt that made you feel like you couldn't write in your own voice? Tell me about those things that that you had to be a certain way. Those things that you are now kind of pushing back against, and, um, te and teaching others to push back. against. Yeah, I mean, it's the culture itself, the culture that I'm tackling, and. Mm -hmm. um, Give me an example. What are the things that, that like that now is they just give you fuel when you see <laughs> and sometimes it's like a, it's that fire that gives you fuel. You know, it's okay, I think I have a decent example for you here. Um sometimes again, I I I engage a lot in the the social media space now and and 
in basically Arab TikTok and Arab uh, Instagram. Oh, and so when you say the culture, you're talking about like the like the Arab culture that you were raised in, or? Arab Muslim culture specifically. Muslim culture. That the, okay. the 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 um, concentric circles of those two mm-hmm. um, kind of coming together in that world, um, and I. Th- um, and so, like, again, I'm engaged with these these social media communities and I see such like progressive uh, conversations happening. And sometimes I find myself questioning, like, does my book is my book still needed? Like, does it do anybody still need does anybody still need what I have to say? Or have we all collectively moved past this? Have we all just like collectively overcome our patriarchal ways and then i look at the comments say no (laughs) no no then i look down at the comments and i'm just like oh my god we still very very much need this like what give me give me something is clearly hit you over the head when you're thinking about that well uh i don't write personally about uh queer issues uh lgbtq issues but i'm i'm an ally and um whenever i see somebody post about like an arab queer person or an arab queer kind of issue mm-hmm. um you'll see so many people who are just be like you're in sin and this is not halal and like this is not what god and i'm just like oh my god no no please like why are we still thinking this why are we still like this or, or why are or, we like this is a thing that i yeah. i think about all the time or you know you'll have a lot of like um arab women who will just like post about jokes about having their white boyfriend and it's like there's there's fun um humor in just like having to educate your white boyfriend on our food and on our culture on meeting the mom etc inevitably in any one of those posts you'll see comments of people being like um you know well that's that's she's living in sin and um you know that's not halal and like you you're bringing a shame to islam and then you have somebody commenting on that being like not all arabs are muslim and it's just like oh my god why are we going down this rabbit hole and it has nothing to do with whether you're muslim or christian or anything it's it's her own business and and her own value set and so it makes me realize like we're not we have so far to go still and these are the kind of things i'm tackling is these things where we conflate people like religious we still have a lot of religious fundamentalism Mm -hmm. but we also have so many levels of that within the islamic culture and i think there's a lot of people within that who just forget or don't think about autonomy like we're such a community oriented um uh, culture in many ways is a beautiful thing you know the way we think about like how families come together and the way we connect with each other there's so much beauty to it but then there's so many ways in which um we ruin that community right. by judging each other and by like um basically like uh almost playing god on mm. on how people live their lives you know we talked about show not tell right so yes. let's show a little bit. Tell me about your your growing up and some of these things that okay. and the ways that they that they interacted with your life. So New Jersey, mm-hmm. Palestinian immigrant parents. Yep. What did your community look like? What did your neighborhood and your streets look like? Kids on your neighborhood. Uh, well, I mean, I grew up in a suburb, and um, it was actually it's a funny thing. The way I grew up was an interesting, unique circumstance. That um, my parents themselves they came here in the early 80s 
And for the most part, they were alone. They had a few friends that they were able to connect with, but really they were kind of finding their way. And in the 80s, they were not, I wouldn't say assimilating. They they would hate the word assimilating if they heard me say that, hmm. but there it is. Um, but they were adapting. Hmm. They were adapting. Um, there was a different kind of culture before 9-11 for Arab Muslims, a little bit of kind of just like don't, rock don't rock the boat don't make waves like a lot less women were wearing hijabs at that time um so it was a little just kind of like we're just gonna go with the flow and and have um you know our world and and my parents had their few arab friends but they also had a lot of white friends a lot of like hispanic friends all different cultures um, and, and so, they, how was like how was your life reflected in there? Because to grow up in a strong culture, like I grew up in, in a strong Cuban culture yeah. as a Cuban American in Miami, even though I'm born here, and there's a lot of like um, uh, mores, right, that tie into your culture that that dictates you know your life. And yeah, well, the thing is, so th- this is that's the first step. So that's how like they they were as, when I was a very young child. But then in 1990. My grandparents on my mother's side, they came to live with us. They were um, uh, expelled from Kuwait during the Gulf War. Oh, wow. So I always talk about how my grandparents on my mother's side, they were refugeed twice over in their lives. What's the first time? So the first time was that when they were um, expelled from Palestine in 1948 during what we call the Nekba, which translates to the catastrophe, mm. uh, around the same time as Israel uh, identifies as their independence. We identify it as their violent occupation mm. of our region, and many and hundreds of thousands of Palestinians were expelled uh, during that time. Uh, my grandparents all basically escaped to um, Kuwait, then to Ku- uh, to Beirut, then to Kuwait, and on my father's side to Jordan. Um, but then those grandparents that were settled in Kuwait eventually had to leave because of the Gulf War, and they came to live with us. So that must have been a real, like, you're an American kid growing up in New Jersey. Yes, uh, yes, exactly. And now and you have these three three layers of generations all living under one roof. Exactly. And I wasn't actually taught, that's why my Arabic is per- imperfect right now, because I wasn't taught it as a child um, to sympathize with my parents. They were um, approaching citizenship. They had a lot of different angles. It took them about 20 years to finally get citizenship in the United States. Um, and they... Their, one of their first angles was what we call a hardship case, mm. uh, which basically means that if your child like grew up on chicken nuggets and English, it's going to be a hardship to bring them back home. Mm. Um, and that using your child basically as a way towards citizenship, that, that path did not act, eventually pan out, but that was why I didn't learn Arabic for the first few years of my life. And then wow. I learned it when my grandparents came. And my grandmother is this beautiful extroverted magnet of a woman She's the one who found the community. Oh, wow. So it was like after 1990 is when the community started to flock like gravity towards us. Talk about giving permission. Yeah. Your grandmother being the one that says, okay, we're going to find community. We're going to build community here. You have permission to not have to assimilate. Yes. But that kind of backfired for me because then my parents kind of like, there is... I think there's a mentality that I think is somewhat universal amongst um, our immigrant communities. And I think it might be universal amongst a lot of different immigrant communities is that you didn't leave because you actually wanted to leave your home country. You left because there was hardship in that country. Right. And so there's this notion of like, 
in the back of your mind, you always think that this is not home. It takes so many decades for you to identify this as home. Like you always feel like a visitor. And so you you pass that on. I talk a lot about generational trauma and generational uh, thinking as well. And so like you pass that notion on to your children. So for your children, they're like, they never quite feel American enough. Like I never felt like I was American, but I also never felt like I was Arab enough because I just hadn't been there, hadn't been overseas. I knew nothing about it. Um, and so... And that goes to an image of like what's painted for you as what's supposed to be American, right? And like, but American's bad. Everything, quote, American is bad. It's. I remember mm. a moment when my mom, after 30 years in this country, she had like an epiphany where she realized she'd been in America longer than she'd been anywhere else in her life. And it was a very jarring thing for her. Like I felt for her yeah. that that was such a jarring thing for her to realize that like, no, I'm actually more American than anything else. But yeah. like the immigrant mentality is like, this isn't home. Like we'll always, mm. there's always this like deluded notion that one day we will go back. Um, so. And so you're talking about these generations then now becoming more ingrained in your culture. So that sounds like it was. It was a real inflection point for you, in yeah, a, and, and not an e- and not an easy one. Yeah, yeah, and it's it it basically it, it what it creates is this scenario where um, they they get lost in um, a time capsule almost. Mm. So your parents they know back home from their time, and they don't realize that everything's moving forward. So they're raising their kids on values that they knew and fighting Americanism. So you get, you in the next generation get lost in this time capsule as well. How did that affect you literally? Like the way you were dressing, who you were going out with? uh, Well, yeah, I mean, I had rules around like how modest I was allowed to dress. Um, Like, you know, whether I can show midriff, as I'm showing right now, whether I can like... You're unafraid of our cold studio, which I like. <laughs> yeah, I am quite unafraid of your cold studio. It's not cold for me. Like I said, I run hot. Um, <laughs> but like, you know, how how exposed my shoulders were, uh, how short my shorts were. Um, also like, you know, we a big thing, I, probably the main thing that comes up in my novel is this idea of like, we don't have boyfriends, no boyfriends. You don't talk to Americans or you don't talk to American men. You don't have male friends. Like it's very like, but it's wow. like, I grew up in, I had male friends. Like I had boyfriends. I had like a history that all was just in secret. And that's the thing wow. that it's, it's like, th- what I want to challenge uh, when I talk to my own community in my writing is that like your secrets are real and they're valid in your life the thing that you're trying to hide you're not alone because I felt so alone growing up like I felt like I was living this secret life that I couldn't tell anybody um that I was just messing up all the time um you know like whenever I would have a crush on the white boy like, I just felt like a failure. Mm. Um, how I, um, yeah, like, again, I, I get into sex. I, I don't know what level I'm going I'm to get into detail with that here. But, like, um, I had a sexual life that I felt very ashamed about. Mm. Very, very ashamed about a sexual life that, like, is the ultimate no-no. And it's so taboo in our culture to even talk about our sexual lives. And it's, um, 
it, there's still so much conversation around whether you can or can't have a premarital sexual life. Mm. Um, and it's like, I kind of want to maybe not debunk, but like, let's have a conversation. Let's have a real conversation about what this is. Our guest today is the Palestinian-American writer Siham Inshasi. She was chosen by the Miami Book Fair as their emerging writer, fellow in fiction. That means she's in town for a year to write and to teach us how to write and find her voices. Speaking of finding her voices, that's a big part of the next thing, right? Is you grew up with this life that you have to step outside of, right? And yeah. That, so tell me about the discovery of when you begin to write and when you realize that this is, this is the path that you're going to go on. Right, like you do, you go to college and you don't become a writer. You go into a life in advertising, right? That's a kind of writing. <laughs> uh, that is, you know what? It's that's also a cultural conversation um, that I I touch on a little bit. Um, it's a it's a a different aspect of our cultural world. Is that um, we you're raised as a child of immigrants you're just basically raised with a level of responsibility and a level of like no you got to get a real job and you got to be successful and you have to like do well and the job has to be a cog it has to fit into the exactly. into the machine right what i joke about a lot is i refer to the big 5 the big 5 all most all like um kind of BIPOC and immigrant communities think of as real jobs is your doctor your lawyer your engineer uh finance or computers right if it's not one of those five your parents have no idea what you're saying or what you're doing um it so i i knew i wanted to write i knew that it was basically the only thing i wanted to do since like sophomore year of high school it was all i ever knew and so it was what was the moment what was the or what were those moments where you write and you that something revealed itself you know beyond the story. beyond the veil um my I grew up reading. My mom was actually a huge voracious reader. She raised me on it. I knew how to read read mm -hmm. by three years old. Before wow. I even started kindergarten, I was I read all the Dr. Seuss books my mom had bought for me. Amazing. Um, she used to instead of like singing lullabies to me, apparently she would read her romance novels very animatedly out loud to me with my, with me in her arms while she would rock me this is an anecdote she told me Nora Roberts is a is a, yes. is a, is a, is a bedtime story she's a Danielle Steele girl ah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but um uh so I always loved reading and the origin story is actually sophomore year of high school I had this amazing amazing English teacher she actually passed our senior year and she was well loved like so many of us went to her wake she was um, oh, wow. she was just this powerhouse of a woman uh, Dr. Gleason and she for one of our I think it was our, either our midterm or our final exam she assigned us uh, to write a story based on a picture prompt and the picture prompt was um, Oh my God, now I can't remember the name. Night. The one in the bar, there's like the, the there's like the bartender with the three people sitting on the Edward bar. Edward Hopper. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Classic. That, that hop, Hopper painting with the empty diner and like the yes, three people Yes, yes, inside. yes, yes. I forgot the name. The name has night in it. I'm mm -hmm. so angry at myself for not, because I got used to knowing the name, but this was the prompt. And she gave it to us in advance, but she told us we had to read, the, write the story in class. Mm -hmm. I cheated big secret I wrote the story in advance and it was like the one time I ever cheated in my entire school career was that I wrote it and basically folded it up into a tiny little piece of paper and snuck it into the class and then transcribed that story 
uh, onto the exam. Amazing. And that was my <laughs> origin story. I wrote that story and I want, I want to keep doing this. Amazing. This is the thing I love doing. But then when did you... So... Yeah, so what gives you the, the, the liberty or the, the gumption to break from your... your your 12-hour working days in advertising. Like, were you writing at the same time? Or would you go home and write? What was your life like? Tough, 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 tough. Um, I, in college, I studied English with a focus in creative writing. Uh, I also minored in theater. I didn't know what I wanted to do. All I, like, I just kind of studied what I liked mm -hmm. and I figured I'll figure it out I just that's been a mantra of my whole life and I've somehow managed to do it because same of the the <laughs> the the little ideas in my head like that little germ in my head of like you have to succeed so it was just like I'll figure it out I'll figure it out I'll figure it out I kept doing that and I actually had a, a previous career I actually worked as an EMT um, on an ambulance really? uh, for about five years all throughout college wow my daughter's in college now my oldest daughter's now doing that yeah, in college, it's it was an amazing an thing. It kind of like sucks your life, but it's an easy way to make money and work while you're going to school. Um, oh my god! And as a writer, as a as a fiction writer, like was <laughs> it? Did it become a trove for at least stories to tell your friends at the bar? Uh yeah. I mean, there's there's a lot of stupid stories to tell. So many, <laughs> but uh, I mean, it kind I kind of got like sucked into that, and it's like again, I hadn't figured it out. All I knew is I like to write, and I like this EMS thing. It's all I could figure out. Um, it's actually funny because I've been drafting, literally in the last couple of days, I've been drafting the um, story of how I eventually transitioned from EMS to advertising. Oh, and wow. it was thanks to a guy I dated in my senior year of college who... Um, I mean, turned out to be very manipulative in a lot of other ways. It was a very, like, it was a two-month crash and burn uh, relationship. Oh, uh, those are those are good for copy. Just ask Taylor Swift. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, Double but, platinum. But he basically was the one who kind of taught me and my parents, who, again, were focusing on this big five. Mm. It's just like, go after marketing jobs. Like, uh, I, I was going to a career fair, and he said, go after marketing jobs. None of us had a clue what he was saying. Like, okay. So I just, like, went to a career fair, went door to door to every booth, just like, tell me about your marketing jobs. Tell me about your marketing <laughs> jobs. I had no idea. And at the last booth before I left the building, I saw this um, like bright flash animation video on a screen. And I was like, what is that? And they're like, we're an ad agency. And he told me all the titles that he has. And he's like, we're looking for copywriters. I was like, wait, what is this job with the word writer in it? And he explained to me what copywriters do. And I'm like, yeah, I can do that. And then I chased that. Wow. Um, and, and that became like the first like uh, like permissible like the straight the straight job yes, so to speak exactly uh, to do exactly and, and then because of my EMS I got um, I ended up hooking up very early after college with a pharmaceutical ad agency I had no idea what that mm, was okay. or anything but I learned it as I went basically it was a, a pharma ad agency who came to the second career fair I went to and he looked at my resume. And he was a very pedantic individual. And he looked at me and was like, the top half of your resume tells me that you use the left side of your brain and the bottom half of your resume. Wow, that is me. a frustrated writer if I ever saw one. That was, it was a very hilarious moment, <laughs> but I was just like, uh-huh, uh-huh, This guy has amazing uh -huh. Facebook posts, I'm sure. <laughs> yes. So, but he was just like, do you know what we are? And I was like, is it a real job? <laughs> and does it pay money? Yes, does it pay money? Is it a real job? And then he basically talked me through the process of getting started, and he got me my first job. 
what, and that's it. What what things were happening then to go from that job to then this leap where you where you decide you're going to get your MFA at uh, at the new school in New York? Like there must have been that thing where that's leaping from one ice float to the other. I always say is like it that's was, a big jump. It, it looks like a jump, but it was a it was actually a very um, calculated long term plan. Mm. I. Uh, I tried to stay with the writing mm-hmm. for a little while after I graduated, but the, the work sucked me in. And for a little while, yeah. I always say I, I drank the Kool-Aid. Yeah. got like sucked into um, doing my creative work via advertising, which is actually few and far between. It's very hard. Um, and eventually I realized I was like, this isn't feeding my soul. Mm. This isn't inspiring me. This isn't doing anything for me. It's just I've I'd stopped writing for years, for many, many years. Wow. Um, and it was around 2015, I was between jobs, and I was just like, I can't, none of this works for me. I've tried every angle of this career to try to make it work for me, and none of it's still working for me. I, sh- I need to change careers. And that's when I was like, what happened to your writing? Hmm. Like, I forgot about it. So basically from 2015, and that's when I started drafting these first pages, I wrote like 312 pages, um, Wow. By just going to a coffee shop. That is a real book at three when you were at three hundred and fifteen pages. Well that that was the thing. I wrote all that and I realized I hadn't even scratched the surface of my book. So I was like, wow. I need to I need to hone this. I need to do something different here. Well, and what, what strikes me is that you must meet a lot of people like you were when you're doing your when you were doing the, the workshop here with through the book fair. Mm-hmm. Folks who are in whatever job they're in, but their passion still is writing and they're looking for Someone to give them permission, someone to, 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 um, kind of like cheer them on, right? Yeah, to follow yeah, down yeah. This path. When I first started out, I actually kind of signed up for I don't know if you know of uh, NaNoWriMo, NaNoWriMo, uh, National Na- Novel Writing Month is oh, November every okay. year. You can basically it's like this online forum. You just sign up, you kind of make yourself a profile, and they'll do live meetups. Cool. So, like, I would go to, like, live write-ins um, at various places in New York, and I'd met a lot of writers, same idea, just people who uh, just really want to create this thing and need the uh, encouragement to do it. And, and NaNoWriMo is, like, a, an online challenge where basically write a 50,000-word 50K, 50 K, 50, novel in a month. That's wow. the challenge. Wow. And they have all these, like, like stickers and... and, and, and um, kind of prizes and stuff like that like it's it becomes this community well you were Um, you were well on your way at that point you were writing you had like uh, whether you had acknowledged it right consciously or not your subconscious was like we're doing this we're writing reams of copy yes yeah I think I wrote my first hundred pages in that first month and then I just kind of kept going and it was it was just like a new a new light had turned on. And then that's when I started thinking about grad school. Um, I was married at the time. Mm-hmm. My my ex-husband was actually also in grad school. And I remember just telling him, I was like, would it be weird if I go to grad school too? And it's, for all his flaws, he was very supportive of like what I needed to do. And he was like, you should do that. Um, and then, then I met a whole other set of aspiring writers. Mm-hmm. Um, and it that's when I kind of fell into the world head first. And when I started to figure out, I turned those 312 pages into like, oh, this is the story I want to write. This is the thing I want to create. Um, my speculative component of my story, which is a time-traveling grandmother from 1917 Palestine, came to life in 
grad school. I love that. <laughs> what an amazing, what an amazing hook. I'm in. Well, that's like she kind of helped. She kind of helped create a map around the thing. Like I said, I wrote 315 pages and didn't have wasn't close to the end of my book. And I was like, I need a map. I need to figure out what I'm doing here. Um, so I created a spirit guide, a spirit guide that came from pre Balfour Declaration Palestine and showed up in the middle of 2017 New York City and is going to be my character's saving grace, essentially. Amazing. <laughs> you know, I think about, um, if I'm not mistaken, you told us that uh, your mentor, the person who picked you to come here, was uh, was a, a Disha Filia. Yep. Have I pronounced that correctly? I believe so, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, she, uh, as we were just you know reading about her, today it was revealed that she signed a seven-figure book deal for her next two books, and her her. Her book that put her on the map, uh, Secret Lives of Church Ladies, is going to be an HBO Max series. So I knew about the HBO Max series. I did not know about the book deal. I have to text her to congratulate her now. <laughs> when you see Good something news. like that, somebody who's literally a, a mentor, does it give you fuel? Does it allow you to dream big then? Uh, you know, just the fact that she chose me was hmm. so humbling and so... Um, validating mm. it was amazing because we uh what i'd mentioned to your producer we didn't know that when we got chosen um for all the fellows all mm. of us when we were chosen for miami uh book fair fellowship we were just so happy about it we were told that we will be assigned a mentor we didn't think about it. we thought it would just be randomly assigned and then when we went in for orientation uh we were told that the final decision maker uh who chose our piece was our mentor so it was like Oh my God, like that was just so wow. And then, so then I go to read her book and her book, I highly, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful set of stories. The Secret Lives of Church Ladies. Secret Lives of Church Ladies. Um, absolutely, like it was just, it's mind boggling. Each one of them just kind of stayed in my feels for a very, very long time. I had to read them like one at a time just to kind of absorb each one individually. Um, and so like I, I, a published author picked me and loved me and endorsed my work and like when I first met with her with, to talk about my work and she'd have comments just like wow or woof or lol or like and just like you like what I'm doing and that is all the fuel in the world that I need and then yes she's so successful um I knew about the HBO series um, isn't it great to have an editor that yes improves your work but also says great job keep yeah, going yes. right like we, I think I, I'm, I've come from a journalism background. I'm very much like this is garbage, crumble, crumble up and throw it away. <laughs> but when you find that one that encourages yeah. you to keep for, going forward, and to that end, I want to ask what it's been, what it was like. Like, what did you learn about our voices in Miami when you were dealing one on one with people the way that your mentor was working with you? Uh -huh. Tell me about some of the themes you saw. Were the things that stood out to you that you learned about, even learned about South Florida? Ah, oh, that's a good question. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I think, again, we, you know, when I talked a lot about language mm. and I realized like a lot of people really, really wanted that permission to write in their language. The Miami dialect. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Like a lot of people really needed, need that permission to be like, be Miamian. Or is that how you guys refer to it? Sure. <laughs> sure. So like be your authentic selves. Like it's, it's. Um, it's interesting because I think about like since coming here, um, 
I, I'm getting to know the literary community here. Mm -hmm. And what I'm getting to about it is that it's still growing and it's still kind of like figuring itself out. It's still got its like it it's it's still like a toddler wobbling along mm. and, and trying to just like find and touch new things and all that. Um, and so there's. And so how did those like how does it manifest itself? Like when you see the community, like where do you see it pop up the most? Like where is it the most vibrant? From the time that you've been down here, like where do you go to to feed your writer's soul, so to speak? Um, okay, so I mean, obviously, books and books is like the staple of the community. Yes, we all genuflect at the off, that the at the altar of Mitchell Kaplan, right? <laughs> yes, you know what? It's funny. I I was thrown off by it at first, and then I realized like there's something beautiful about the fact that like you have this one person who's kind of like the godfather of the literary community here. Um, I came from New York and there was a sense where when I first came here, it was almost a little bit of a letdown. I'm just like, yeah, literary community, but like our literary community in New York, you can, there's something for everybody. Mm. Like there's any, like I could find the Arab LGBTQ fringe progressive uh, film group. You could like, keep slicing down yes, further and further and, and find that And there's a group niche. for it and it's it's wild and there's a scene for it and there's um, whereas here you know there's kind of just like this one scene that's mm -hmm. building itself up um, and it's it, in a sense again it's that toddler but in another sense it's kind of like there's this beauty to the fact that there's a community. Like people people do seem to feel like they genuinely know each other. Like what I was going to say was that, you know, Books and Books is a great venue. It's a little far from me. I live in North Miami, so it's kind of like a huff mm -hmm. for me to go down oh, there. Yeah. So I don't go down there very often. But what I do live close to is Parody Books and Bread. Oh, right. Yeah. A little, that, wine, a little wine shop up in... Uh... It's an amazing, amazing venue. I will highly endorse this little place. Um, they, I go there now like once a week to write, and they're starting to know me by name. And... Um, and what I love is like they do they do uh, community events like they'll have like coffee pop ups they'll have like bake sales things like that so when I go there during a community event it really gives you that cheers vibe that mm. that vibe of like everybody knows your name Sam yeah oh like, you're it, a Sam even, that's well, a perfect yeah. fit but it's like it's not even like me per se like I'm just still watching it I'm still kind of settling in but I watch everybody else come in and they're hugging each other and they're saying hello and like everybody knows each other in this space and I'm like this. This is the heart. This is the heart of this community. Mm -hmm. And I really, really like love that. Um, and it, I like that I'm kind of making steps into it. It's, it's funny because for a few weeks I was going there every Sunday. And then last week I went there on Thursday and I confused p poor Bianca, who's one of the owners. She's just like, wait. Is it the end of my week or the beginning of my week? You're confusing me. I'm used to you here on Sunday. And I'm like, I'm trying to keep you on your toes. <laughs> same girl. I feel that way on, on my Thursday. I feel the same way. But it, so, it, I mean, you're, you're a fellow. You'll be a fellow here for the next couple of months. In the last minute or so, like, what are what are the things you're looking forward to in your in your the last your last time here in Miami? <sighs> Get, what I'm looking forward to in my last... Um, I just... I think I'm finally starting. It took so long, but I'm finally starting to feel like I'm melding into the fabric mm -hmm. of the city. Uh, so I guess now I just want to like enjoy what that is to the fullest degree, if that makes sense. Um, kind of just like 
play Miamian for a little while. <laughs> I like it. Well, we will all look forward to see how Miami has hopefully affected your your work in a good way when your novel's published. Thank I will see. Sam, thank you so much for coming in and spending the hour with us. Thank you so much for having me. This has been wonderful. Our guest today was the writer Siham Inshasi. She has a one-year fellowship with the Miami Book Fair to work on her novel and to help other writers find their voices. And that's Sundown for Thursday, September 14th. Leslie Ovalle Atkinson is our lead producer. Elisa Baena is our producer and social media editor. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's VP of News. And Katie Munoz is our director of live programming. Peter J. Mertz is WLRN's VP of Radio. And Richard Ives is our engineer. Our theme music is by the Miami Afro-Cuban funk band Palo at GoPalo.com. You can download a podcast of this program. Just search for WLRN Sundial on your podcast app. Coming up next week on the program, Jim Crow laws didn't only separate white and black people in life, but also in death. We hear the story of a local cemetery and how it was saved by a son looking for his mother's final resting place. I'm Carlos Frias. Good vibes only. WLRN Public Media.